Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode usually calls upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarrow, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Now, much like the earlier episode on The Passenger, this is a quick release, quick hitting, short review of Stella Morris, and like that previous episode, this one will break with the tradition of always having a guest speaker, and it'll just be my quick, barely edited take on the just-released novel Stella Morris by Cormac McCarthy. Stella Morris is, of course, the companion novel to The Passenger, which was published previously in October. On that previous podcast, I stated that one could read The Passenger without losing too much if that reader were to skip Stella Morris, although the the experience would be less rich, and it would be less fulfilling. But I believe that a reader attempting Stella Morris without first reading The Passenger is going to be quite lost and will miss numerous connections, as I'll explain throughout this episode. As before, I will try to keep the review more or less spoiler-free in the first half. Honestly, this is an almost entirely plotless novel in terms of things which happen during the current context of the narrative kinds of plots. Theme-wise, it's much more engaging and more interesting. Likewise, I'll try to keep spoilers from the passenger to a minimum over the first half, but a few will doubtless squeak through, so please proceed at your own risk. This novel opens as a case file of transcripted conversations between Alicia Western and her psychiatrist, Dr. Cohen. Alicia has previously been a resident of Stella Morris, and this time she has voluntarily come again to this facility set in Black River Falls, Wisconsin. The fall's opening date is set October 1972, eight years before the passenger's opening date of 1980, and, coincidentally, almost 50 years to the date of when this novel is originally scheduled to be published before being pushed back to the, the first week of December. Alicia Western is 20 years old, and as most of you will know, she is the younger sister of Bobby Western, protagonist of The Passenger. The opening note tells us she is attractive but possibly anorexic, and she is, quote, Jewish-Caucasian, end quote, and she is a doctoral candidate at the University of Chicago and has been diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic with a long-standing ideology of visual and auditory hallucinations. We are informed that Alicia has been a prior resident on two occasions. Now, the Jewish ethnicity of Alicia and Bobby Western is a bit interesting, and I'll discuss that a little bit later in the episode. Discussing this book at length without really getting into the nitty-gritty of it is somewhat difficult because only two characters appear as anything other than a conversational construct by Alicia Western. This isn't like Holden Caulfield using the excuse of the psychologist's couch to develop a novelistic narrative like you see in Catcher in a Rye. Instead, this book stays true to the conversation format. We are presented with seven different conversations, or interviews if you prefer to call them that. It's a slim volume, only about 190 pages or so of actual text. So, the name of the institution, Stella Morris, it didn't take the research assistant, Mr. Google, long to find several interesting facts. 
drawing upon his close colleague, uh, Senor Wikipedia. First, due to a translation error by St. Jerome, the Virgin Mary's Hebrew name, Miriam or Miriam, was somehow translated into Latin as drop of the sea, or in some context, star of the sea. So somewhere along the line, the North Star Polaris would also be referred to as Della Maris, and Mary would be equated as a guiding light helping lost and wandering sailors find their way home. So interestingly then, we have a conflation of ideas, the Virgin Mary and a light in the heavens to guide our way. Certainly Alicia in this novel is perhaps lost in some ways. There's another way that she seems to be a spiritual, virginal creature as well, although that notion is challenged somewhat, I'll say. I should probably note that the faux letterhead of the opening statement indicates that Stella Maris, or maybe it's Stella Maris, I'll say it both ways just to irritate everyone uh, with equal opportunity irritating. The institution has been a, quote, non-denominational facility and hospice for the care of psychiatric medical patients since 1950. Now, during the course of the novel, we learn that Alicia's brother, Bobby, is currently in a coma following a wreck in one of his auto races. This is briefly alluded to in The Passenger, and in Stella Morris, we see that the circumstances were much more traumatic, not only for Bobby, who is in the coma, but for Alicia, his sister who loves him, who takes his injury to heart in the saddest and worst ways. Now. One of the things you'll often hear literary critics and scholars talk about, and certainly professors will talk about this, is the intentional fallacy, which is to say, we can't say we know exactly what an author intends or what an author feels or what how an author sees the world, and we particularly should never make the mistake of conflating a character and an author saying, oh, they're the same person. You see this happen all the time. And, for example, it happened with Sheriff Bell and McCarthy, where a lot of people wanted to have a lot of Bell's sayings about people's politeness or girls with rings in their nose and say that's Cormac McCarthy's views of the world. I think McCarthy's views are quite a bit more idiosyncratic than Sheriff Bell's views. So that is to say we should not read Alicia as a mouthpiece for Cormac McCarthy, if for no other reason, she's a 20-year-old woman interred in a psychiatric care facility, and he's an 89-year-old man who is our greatest living writer. Still, with her disdain for psychology, uh, particularly for Jungians, her cynicism, her wry quips, her interest in obscure details and facts, her obsessiveness regarding intellectualism and intelligence, uh, it is hard not to see her as a younger female version of him in some way, a mathematical genius rather than a genius of prose. And, of course, he states in here that uh, he has Alicia state that intelligence is always tied to mathematical uh, or your abilities with math, not with language, which is interesting. Alicia Western even likes to start sentences with well, like McCarthy does very often. For example, at one point, Dr. Cohen says to Alicia, If you had to say something definitive about the world in a single sentence, what would that sentence be? And she responds, it would be this. The world has created no living thing that it does not intend to destroy. Well, gee whiz, that sounds a little much like McCarthy 
at his bleakest and darkest blood meridianist of moments, doesn't it? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Formally, this novel is almost like a closet drama, which is to say those we think of those Renaissance and Restoration era plays that were written to be read rather than performed. And structurally, of course, it is very similar to The Sunset Limited. We have two people sitting in one room across the table from each other having a conversation. Now, although there are a few notable gaffes here and there over McCarthy's full body of work, I do believe he is an exceptional writer of dialogue with an amazing ear for colloquialism and dialect, turns of phrase. One of the fears you'd have of him writing a novel written almost entirely in conversation is that by giving one of his characters the voice typical of his third-person eloquence, that person will speak at an entirely unrealistic or absurdly, again, just use the same term, eloquent level. But I think it works in this novel. You get a, a prime example of Alicia channeling her inner Cormac when she says, One of the things I realized was that the universe had been evolving for countless billions of years in total darkness and total silence, and that the way that we imagine it is not the way that it was. In the beginning, always was nothing. The nova exploding silently in total darkness. The stars, the passing comets... Everything at best of alleged being, black fires like the fires of hell, silence, nothingness, night, black suns hurting the planets through a universe where the concept of space was meaningless, for want of any end to it, for want of any concept to stand it against, and the question once again of the nature of that reality to which there was no witness. All of this until the first living creature possessed of vision agreed to imprint the universe upon its primitive and trembling sensorium, and then to touch it with color and movement and memory, it made of me an overnight solipsist, and to some extent I am yet. And he says, how old were you when you had that notion? Not quite in his words, and she says, 12. There are two questions which still remain regarding the genesis of these novels. First, when was the bulk of them written? Second, was Telemaris originally part of the same text as has been speculated? Or has it been a separate text for some time? We'll know the answer to this sooner rather than later, as I believe the Whitliffe Archives at Texas State University in San Marcos have now released a passenger to approved visitors. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. The reality is we have two different novels. I put forward in a recent talk with absolutely zero evidence and no proof in the grand tradition of literary scholars everywhere that I suspected that in the early years of this novel, those written, say, in the 80s, early 90s, Stella Morris, those sections written in the early 80s, early 90s, Stella Morris served as alternating chapters like the current italicized encounters with the Horts do in The Passenger, 
as published. And over his time at the Santa Fe Institute, as McCarthy's knowledge of and interest in the highest echelons of math and physics grew, so did Alicia's views up until they demanded their own separate book. I, again, have zero evidence of this. For what it's worth, I do believe that they work better as a one-two punch, read separately, yet together, than they do as a single unit. In this sense, a reminiscent of Lawrence Durrell's masterpiece, the Alexandria Quartet. The first of those interlocking novels, which details, which all detail the same series of events, more or less from four different perspectives, Justine, stands alone on its own pretty well. On the other hand, the other novels, Mount Olive, Balthazar, Clea, not in that order precisely, all depend upon your having read most of the others, and particularly Justine, first. I may well be proven wrong, and there will be readers who read this novel independently of the other and may find it rewarding to do so. I remember one semester teaching the final novel of the Border Trilogy to a group of undergraduate students and spending an inordinate amount of time explaining to students how, although the events in Cities of the Plain were interesting in their own light, they were much more interesting in the context of the complete trilogy and that you had to understand what John Grady did in All the Pretty Horses to understand him in Cities of the Plain and, and the Coda references back to The Crossing, I finally had to admit to them and to myself I'd made an error in teaching Cities of the Plain independently from the Border Trilogy. And I think Stella Morris is going to be, in some ways or another, very much dependent upon the passenger for full understanding. Okay, at this point, the spoilers are starting, and if you are trying to completely avoid spoilers, you need to stop and come back and listen after you've read this novel by Cormac McCarthy. And of course, you need to read it because it's a book by Cormac McCarthy. Now, one of the questions which remain in this novel, and which I believe is also subtly put forward in The Passenger, is how much we are to read Alicia and to some degree her brother Bobby as victims of paranoia and psychosis, and how much these books might be occupying instead the realm of magical realism, which is to say the so-called horts that are supposed to be hallucinations. What if instead they're actual visitants, visitations from some other time, place, dimension, world, reality, what have you, named the science fiction fantasy cliche of your choice? When Dr. Cohen says to Alicia, the fact that Thorazine stopped the visits of these familiars, doesn't that suggest to you something about the nature of their reality? Her response is, or my ability to perceive it. Well, I suppose one could say that. I suppose one just did. Drugs alter perception. Additionally, the novel spends a good bit more time talking about the Manhattan Project the Oak Ridge encounters between her father and her mother. It does clear up some of the confusion about how Jewish to Western children are supposed to be. And it's been a little confusing for people. And again, I'll get to that in just a little bit. Throughout the novel, we have over and over again, interestingly, these metaphors about sight and perception. 
For example, as a child, Alicia was treated for being cross-eyed by and wore special corrective lenses to counteraffect it. She also has synesthesia. Uh, there have been some rumors that McCarthy himself has suffered from synesthesia at times. That's where uh, certain sounds have certain colors to the person hearing them. And I guess there could be other kind of crossbleeds between the senses as well. There has been some discussion in the exceptional Cormac McCarthy subreddit about whether Alicia and Bobby have ever consummated their relationship and whether the thalidomide kid is supposed to be some kind of hallucination of hers of a stillborn infant or something like that. But I will continue with my belief that that's not really what's going on in the previous book. In, in this novel, she denies on a number of occasions that the relationship took place in that way. For example, in one place, Cohen asks her, were you interested in boys? She says, I was interested in one boy, but it wasn't reciprocal. Why? He wasn't gay. No, it was a different sort of problem. He was older. Everybody was older. That wasn't the issue. What was the issue? Something else. Later in the novel, she is similarly coy, telling Cohen again that Quote, the man I wanted wouldn't have me, so that was that. I couldn't stop loving him, so my life was pretty much over. However, at the same time, we are never given any excuse for why Bobby does not refrain from allowing himself to fall in love when his younger sister, when she is only 13 years old. This is something which I think works well on an intellectual thematic level, and on the symbolic level, but is really troubling when it comes to the text itself, where we evaluate characters and actions as if they're performed by living people, the surface of the text, I should perhaps say. The novel suffers from the same issue that the passenger does, in that there are times where she starts speaking about various math and physics issues. Often the shorthand in such cases is a kind of teacher's lounge gossip about famous quantum physicists and mathematicians. As I said with the earlier novel, I think there are probably places where these discussions are... The references create a kind of metaphor, which can be decoded only by if one educates oneself to sufficiently grasp the meaning of the this person or that person, Godel or Brahm or whomever, is being brought up. On the other hand, I'm not sure that necessarily makes all these conversational elements work or believable. In this case, since the form is that of an interview and we're dealing with the subject of an interview, to my mind, the conversations work better in this novel than they do in its big brother, The Passenger. And now, it will be almost impossible for me to not think of these two books as the big brother and the little sister novels going forward, especially given Orwellian overtones to parts of The Passenger. I apologize for adding this brain worm to your collection of previously collected brain worms. The magical realism or fantastical take on the novel gains another level when in conversation Alicia says to Dr. Cohen, when she was younger at 10 or 11, quote, I had a sort of waking dream that was frightening to me. Then I realized that it was neither waking nor a dream. It was something else. 
I had no reason to believe that what I saw did not exist, and if that realm was unknown to us, that didn't make it less threatening, but more. He says, what was the dream, or the vision, or whatever it was? I saw through something like a Judas hole into this world, where there were sentinels standing at a gate, and I knew that beyond the gate was something terrible, and that it had power over me. Something terrible? Yes, a being, a presence, and that the search for shelter and for a covenant among us was simply to elude this baleful thing, of which we were in endless fear, and yet of which we had no knowledge. You were how old? Ten? I think ten. We may remember in The Passenger that, that the Lidomide kid tells her implicitly, and also tells Bobby explicitly in the encounter with Bobby, whether that's supposed to be a dream, or hallucinated, or actual, that this is the reason why he and the Horts are visiting Alicia, or, as Alicia puts it, when he, he asks her, have you ever had the sense that the kid and his companions were assigned to you? Assigned. Yes. By whom? I don't know. But that does seem to be what she feels. That that's the whole point of the kid and his cohorts. So I guess this is a weird analogy, but it's almost a little bit reminiscent of 2001, the... Stanley Kubrick film that was merged together out of a few Arthur C. Clarke stories, and Arthur C. Clarke, of course, later rewrote it into a novel. Is it like she's this new evolutionary stage and can perceive reality in a way that others cannot? And so beings of a higher order, call them angels, call them aliens, call them archons, are they reaching out to her? Or is she just hallucinating. Now, two other things to bring up. Theology professor Chris Green has pointed out that the names Alice and Bob are two of the names for tracking quantum entangled particles in famous thought experiments. And of course, Alicia's name originally was Alice. She changes it to Alicia. Lately, on the previously mentioned subreddit, other folks have been talking about this as well. Uh, so I'm looking forward to Chris's article that he's writing this up in. And our other point is, as always, Cormac is up to his playful tricks on the reader. Also, it is interesting that the Western siblings are considered Jewish. As near as I can figure it, his father's first wife, whom the rest of the family didn't know about until they were grown, was Jewish. And their great-grandmother on their mother's side was Jewish. They've gone to church with their maternal grandmother, who seems to raise Alicia from her 12th birthday on. But we know their father was more or less an atheist and seems not ethnically Jewish. Yet, Alicia is interested in the correlation between Jewish heritage and the genius physicists and mathematicians. I'll be honest, I'm not really sure what I think of all of this. From the mystical side of things, it almost seems to raise up the notion of the chosen people of God. The sociologically astute side of me would point out how much Jewish culture in pre-Holocaust East European and Germanic countries responded to the uh, enormous amounts of outer anti-Semitism being perpetrated on them by privileging education and discipline. And perhaps, though, that's a reductive notion in itself. As I said, I don't know what I think about it. In the previous podcast I released on The Passenger, I stated I wouldn't put it among his best novels, 
primarily because I thought there were too big a divide between the elements of the subtext, which I suspect are marvelously complex, interwoven, intelligent, and worthy of years of unpacking, and the elements of the text itself, which is to say, character, plot, structure, which I thought and think were somewhat messy. I will say my enjoyment of the novel improved with rereading it, and it will improve more, I think, the more I reread it. And the Gestalt still offers what Roland Barthes calls the pleasure of the text, except he said it in French, and I'll spare you my woeful attempt to cite the source that way. So when I said that The Passenger and its little sister, Stella Morris, are not McCarthy's best novels, I just mean I don't put it in the same category as Blood Meridian, Sutri, The Road, All the Pretty Horses, and The Crossing, which are probably today, at this moment in time, recording this at a conference in a hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, with the cold. Those are my personal top five on this day. doesn't mean they will be three days from now. And also, so it doesn't mean I think these are necessarily bad or unworthy of reading. I'll take this over the most recent pop boiler put together by a bunch of interns for James Patterson any day. As always, thank you for listening, and thanks to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced the theme music and interludes for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guest, when he has them, do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. You can find Reading McCarthy on Twitter and Facebook, which I hope Steve Fry checks out every now and again, because I haven't been so much. The website is at readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the top of the page to buy the show a cappuccino. You can support it at www.patreon.com forward slash readingmccarthy. I will be, before too long, accepting minor, not cumbersome sponsorships in the near future to defray the minor expense of the show. The backlist will also end up being sponsored at that point. And it'll just help pay what I pay to support it. So thank you very much for listening.